Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to worship today on this Labor Day weekend. My name is Amanda Neffel. I'm one of the pastors here at Hope. And along with Pastor Richard, who's going to be joining me in a few minutes, we are so excited to be gathered here with you today as we wrap up this sermon series that we've been looking at here for the past several weeks. And we're looking at positive megatrends in the 21st century church. Uh, and so as you are, those of you gathered here in this room today, those of you joining us online, our local sites, uh, we're so glad that we get to worship together as one body in thousands of locations this morning. Today we kind of wrap up this sermon series with a little bit of an action call, if you will. Uh, we're looking at the church awakening and leaning in to who the church is. And we're looking at that through the lens of 1 Peter chapter 2 that you heard Pastor Andy read for us here just a few moments ago. And we're kind of looking at the church potentially as something of a sleeping giant. There are 2 billion people in the world who identify themselves as Christian, and that's about 25% of the world's population. And so today we're looking at what would happen, just what if, the church really started to act like brothers and sisters? What if the church really started to understand that we're not just people in, in a place, in a specific time, at a specific service, but actually that the church extends all the way back to Pentecost, as Pastor Mike talked about last week. The church began at Pentecost, and there's been millions of believers, billions of believers throughout time, and will extend until the time that Christ comes back. It's not just about any of us as individual believers so much as it's about our community and our family. That's what Peter writes about in his, in his first letter here when he talks about how we are living stones in this spiritual temple built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And it's incredible when you think about that, that of all the ways that God wanted to accomplish his purposes, he chooses to do it through, through believers, through you and through me and through the billions of us who are, who are in the world. And so I just can't help but wonder today, what if we were to, to lean into who we are? What if we were to get excited about this family that we are a part of? What if we were to seize our identity for everything that it is and move forward from that instead of the little things that can get distracting to us? I want you to hang on to those thoughts uh, because that's kind of the guiding question that we're asking as we go through this message today. What would it look like if the church, the sleeping giant, were to live and lean into what it means to be the church? And that's what we're going to unpack a little bit here in our time. Time together today. Um, I have a, a silly, frivolous example of what, of what I mean by this. For years, and I do mean for years, for much of my adult life, uh, I, I know this is silly, but I really wanted a Jeep Wrangler. And so this summer, uh, some circumstances came, to, came together and I was able to, uh, to get a Jeep Wrangler. And I know what you're wondering. You're wondering if that thing is ever going to see dirt roads and get to be what it was supposed to be, get off the beaten path. You're wondering, aren't you? And the answer is yes. I have done that already. I'm not going to tell you about it. I'm not totally sure I was supposed to be where I was. I'm not totally sure I wasn't supposed to be there, but I'm not totally sure that it was okay. So anyway, that's not the point of the story. It doesn't matter. The point of the story is this. Once I got this Jeep Wrangler, I then learned that there is an entire subculture 
around it. There is a whole thing. So when you meet other people in, in some sort of a wrangler, you wave at them or you give a peace sign. Like, and it's awesome. And so I have gotten into this with gusto. Like I'm giving peace signs and waving at people like it's my actual job. And my kids are kind of like this. And I think that might be another reason why I'm into it so much. But then there's this other thing. And there's this little game that has been described to me as duck, duck, jeep. If you're not familiar with this, don't worry if you're not. I hope I'm not giving away secrets that I'm not supposed to give away. But um, <clears throat> you might randomly, as a driver of a, a Jeep Wrangler, find a yellow rubber duck on your Jeep. And when that happens, then you have been ducked. And then your job is to take this duck with you, and then you find another Jeep and you pass it on. And it's just fun and silly. And I'd heard about this, uh, but it hadn't happened, so I thought maybe it just like, didn't really happen that much. But then my kids and I were in Minnesota, and as we went back out to the parking garage, I approached the Jeep, and I see there in the distance that there's a little yellow rubber duck. And I was like, kids, there's a duck on my Jeep. And they think I'm talking about a real duck. And they can't figure out why I'm so happy about that, because that would be terrifying, actually. But anyway, I was so excited that there was a, a yellow rubber duck on my Jeep. And then I was so excited when I got to find another Jeep and run up to it and set it on there and then run back. Friends, <laughs> this is ridiculous. And it's over a vehicle. And so I just can't help but wonder as I think about this, what if, what if you and I and these two billion believers, what if we got even a little bit that jazzed occasionally about the truth of the matter, which is that we are the church of God. We are, we are the bride of Christ. I mean, can we just sit in that for a minute and just, just soak in how incredibly amazing and beautiful and hopeful that is, that that's who we are? Today we're going to celebrate communion. And I just am asking, like, when's the last time you got that communion packet and you just ripped into that thing? Like, this was the best day of your life since last month when we got to celebrate communion. Now, maybe we'll get there today. I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping that that's kind of where we get today to that excitement. But as Peter writes his letter, I just can't help but think that Peter was maybe one of those people with that kind of exuberance and excitement over being a part of what God is doing in the world and calling you and I to be a part of what God is doing in the world, declaring that we are living stones, holy priests, part of this family from the day of Pentecost till the day that Jesus Christ returns. And so when Peter lays this out for us, he says, because of who you are, that very first verse in chapter, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 1 says, because of who you are, get rid of evil behavior. And I know that's challenging for us to even consider evil behavior and consider that that's a real thing. But what Peter is going to remind us and what we're going to talk about today is that when we say yes to Jesus, we are saying no to evil in the, this list of things. Deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, unkind speech, these things are evil. They are not of God. And if we're going to be honest, these are things that all of us get tri tripped up in more often than not. But we're called to be something different than that. And I'm going to invite Pastor Richard to come up here as we transition to this next part of the message. But Peter doesn't actually open his book by telling us what to do. That's not a very good way to win friends and influence people. Uh, he backs up a little bit. And previously in chapter 1, he doesn't just start out by telling us what to do and what to get rid of. He starts out by telling us and reminding us who we are. And so Pastor Richard's going to help us with that. That's an interesting thing because 
in our culture, we don't want to be talking about who we are. We want to be talking about what to do. I mean, North Americans, if we love anything, it's the bullet point. If you listen to a speech in church, if you listen to a speech in a business seminar or on TV, whatever it is, a lecture, everything is about bullet points. You know, how seven steps to a healthy marriage, you know, 15 steps to amazing wealth, you know, three and a half steps to, to, to health. I don't know about the half step, but at any rate, you get the point. It, it, it is, it's, we're like, don't tell us all that soft, fuzzy stuff. Tell us what to do. But Peter takes the opposite tack. And why is he doing that? And Well, it's a simple thing that any psychologist can tell you, and it goes like this. Who you are influences what you do. Let's all say that together. Who you are influences what you do. And let's say that one more time. We'll add the word think in it. Who you think you are influences what you do. Now think about that. So your identity is, if you want a behavior change, you don't rethink what you do, you rethink who you are. And that, that's a huge deal. So Peter spends a lot of time on who, 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 who the people that he's writing to think they are, but also who God says they are. And, and, and he, he doesn't pull any punches. He gets right into the fact that the people Peter is writing to, these folks are getting kicked in the teeth. So let's just read together um, this passage um, and, it, and, you know, if you can, like, pronounce all these nice big words um, and say them ten times in a row, you get a hundred bucks. I know nobody can, including me, so I keep my money. So here we go. To the exiles of the diaspora in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. Now, there's a ton of things flying around there. That, that isn't even, notice that's a partial sentence. Peter keeps on going. Um, and you find this, I mean, that's first century writers. They didn't know a period. I don't think they ever liked a period, you know. It's just, they couldn't keep writing their sentences. I want to unpack that slowly. But the, the first thing I want to unpack is just that, that f- first three words, to the exiles. And what, what Peter claims is that we are people who are living as people in exile. And that's actually the truth. He's not making stuff up. He's just opening up a can of truth and saying, this is the situation. I want to acknowledge it. But the way he says it, if we keep going, it says, to the exiles living in the diaspora. Now, if you've got your Bible in hand, you're saying, well, my Bible doesn't have that word. Uh, it's got the scattering or who are dispersed But the original word that Peter uses is diaspora. And this is the word that Jews use to this day to describe people who do not yet live in Israel. What's he getting at? Well, what had happened to these New Testament Christians is they had pretty well been kicked out of their homes by either the Jewish authorities or the Roman Empire. And they were scattered all over all those places whose names are unpronounceable. And this isn't the first time this has happened. And so that's why Peter is using very specific words that would call them right back to the time of the the Old Testament exile. When the people were scraped out of the land, literally the temple was destroyed, the king was murdered along with his entire family, and they were deported off to Babylon. When they wondered, had God forgotten us? Or was God so angry that there was no going back and he had rejected us as his people? 
But that's not going to be the only time they've been in exile because it's going to happen again just before Peter writes this letter. And it's when the Roman general Titus comes into Jerusalem, wipes out the temple, slaughters all the priests, and drives people off the land. And they are scattered throughout the Roman Empire just as early Jesus followers were. And this would be very fresh in the memory of most of these Jesus followers. And Peter is saying, and God was with them then, and God is with you now. Because they are, are literally experiencing a little bit of what Jesus experienced while he was on this earth. They are literally living in the pattern of Jesus' own sufferings. In fact, Peter spends a ton of time on just this issue of if we're following Jesus so well, why are we getting kicked in the teeth? Why have we been scattered all over the Roman Empire? And this is what he is calling to mind. One is what Jesus himself said. He told his disciples, if they go after the master this way, what do you think they're going to do with the master's servants? Now, the Bible makes very, very clear that God does not send suffering. Nor does God send any kind of evil. But it also makes equally clear that God will leverage the suffering. That he will not leave it alone. That he will not only redeem it, but he will leverage it for our benefit. And so you see this. There's two ways that God is doing this already with these people. One is God was using their suffering to paradoxically increase their faith in him. And Peter writes about that if you keep reading. But the other thing is that also... God is using this suffering to open other people's eyes to his love through the character of these people and how they're dealing with the mess that's been thrown at them. I think of my own life journey. There's been times in my life where there's been a period of immense difficulty and I didn't know how I was going to get through it. And the funny thing is as I got through it, God refined me and increased my trust in him. Even though he didn't send the difficult circumstance my way, he leveraged it so that I would look a bit more like Jesus and also that I would trust him even deeper. Even though you would think the suffering would create the opposite, God knows how to flip it on its head. And he, if he can do it for me, he can do it for you. There's another way of thinking about it. In the Old Testament, there was a prophet, Jeremiah. And this was right after the people of Israel had been exiled. And there were all these false prophets who were, who were telling the people who are now living in Babylon, oh, don't even bother unpacking your bags because God's going to take us right back to Jerusalem. All we have to do is have enough faith and God's going to restore everything. God's going to make it all better because we're just going to claim it. And then we're back to Jerusalem in two years and we'll be back to greatness like we were and the Babylonians will be nuked because God hates our enemies and we hate our enemies and, and, and God's just going to take care of it all. Guess what? God sends the prophet Jeremiah, who has a little bit of a different take on things. And so the first thing he says is, Thus saith God of heaven's armies, who is the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent from Jerusalem to Babylon. So apparently God's behind this. Again, God doesn't send evil, but God works it so well that it looks like he's behind it because you want him behind that stuff because that means good stuff's going to happen eventually. And he says this, far from just simply claiming you got enough faith that we're all going back to Jerusalem, instead do the opposite. Build houses, plant gardens, harvest those gardens, 
get married, have kids, get those kids married and make sure they have grandkids. Lots of them, in fact, it says here. Literally, multiply there and do not decrease. And here's what you do with the city you hate so much. And by the way, God doesn't hate Babylon either. God loves Babylon. God died for Babylon. God loves Egypt. God died for Egypt. There's a promise one day that Babylon will be called my chosen. And Egypt, Israel's arch enemy, will be called my blessed, my inheritance. Think about that. That's the future of God's enemies. Restoration, not destruction. And he says we can begin that restoration this way. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Well, where's Babylon? Guess what? It's right here. And it's right all around us. And you know why? Because Babylon happens anytime you get people together. Because people, we all tend to be about ourselves. We all are broken. And so what happens when you get a bunch of people together? You get a group brokenness. It's called systemic evil in fancy philosophy. And so Babylon is in Germany. Babylon is in China. Babylon is in South Africa. Babylon is in Russia. Babylon is in, you name it, even the good old USA. And what are we called? Not to hate Babylon because God don't hate Babylon. But to love it. To work for its welfare. To pray for its welfare because in its welfare is our welfare. And that's what the early Christians did and they transformed the Roman Empire. That's politics Jesus style, and it doesn't involve political parties. When we love people, we change stuff. Imagine what would happen if two billion people did that. But we are not only people who are, are, are living in exile. We are people who live as a people of purpose. We've talked a little bit about that. But I just want to just go really through how Peter pulls this together. This is kind of a summary of everything we just talked about. Number one, we have been personally chosen for a destiny. And this is hugely important. Because when we live in exile, we wonder if we're any good anymore. Has our story come to an end? And God says, no, far from that, I have personally chosen you. I have decided I cannot live without you. I literally died to rescue you. And that's the next thing. We have been rescued from slavery. And that word that Peter uses is the same word that's used in the Old Testament for the exodus out of Egypt. And then not only that, we have been ransomed. Literally, we are people that God has paid the price to set us free. So this is a God who's got an investment in us. Hardly from being people he's left alone. He has chosen us. He has died for us. And he has created us as people who are called to a purpose and to live with a purpose. But it even goes further than that. We have been given a brand new start. It says Peter calls it the new birth. And even in exile, we get a new start. That's what Jeremiah says. Is my kingdom can show up right in the middle of your exile. Whether it's your personal exile that something's going on with you right now. Or whether we're talking about the despair we see globally, God loves to go right into that darkness and he loves to make art out of ashes, as we sang. And he can do it for us personally and he can do it for the world. And the other thing is we have been set apart. This is a big thing. That's what words like holy and sanctified mean. What have we been set apart for? God's purposes, which Peter calls the obedience to Jesus Christ. And that is nothing less than following Jesus our master. Taking on his teaching, taking on his lifestyle, living in the pattern of his life as we've heard. In fact, 
Peter and the Apostle Paul refer to this as our inheritance. Our inheritance is not a 7,000 square foot home somewhere in the afterlife because the Bible never talks about that. The old word mansion literally means room. Sorry about that. We're going to be engaging in an eternity of being like Jesus. And that's way better than a 7,000 square foot home. I'll tell you that. Because who wants to clean the dang thing? Here's what the inheritance is. In, in Hebrew culture, when you inherited something, it was always land. And what did you inherit land for? Farming. So what you are inheriting is the family business. Well, what's God's family business? Saving souls and restoring the planet. Because God's in the restoration business. If God can rescue you, he can use you to rescue others. And we'll talk about what that looks like. The word is priest. And Pastor Amanda is going to unpack that in just a second. So we have been called into Yahweh and Son's restoration company. And it starts with our lives, but continues with the lives of those around us. It's also about the planet, because God aims to re restore this planet and make it whole. And that makes us extremely special in God's eyes. Because there are no ordinary people in God's economy. There are only people that he died for and, and paid the price to set us free. And Pastor Amanda is going to talk more about that. So we're set apart. We're special. But not in a throw your weight around and show the world how powerful you are sort of way, but special in a we get to live and love well for the sake of our neighbor sort of way. And Peter uh, picks up in chapter 2. And he says, so because of this, because you are set apart to live and love well for the sake of your neighbor, he says, get rid of all evil behavior. And he gives the list of the, the things that he wants us to walk away from. But then just as importantly, he says, don't try and do this on your own. Ask Jesus to help you. He uses the analogy, the imagery of, of a hungry baby, of a baby crying out for milk. And he uh, he reminds us that this is as much a primal need for us to let Jesus do this work in us as this hungry baby. Like, is there anything more adamant than a hungry baby? I'm not sure. I don't think so. And it's meant to, like, get our attention, even, even to look at this little guy. You just want to, like, pick him up, right? It's like put the camera down and pick up that baby. It's meant to get our attention. And Jesus sees us in the same way, knowing our need for him. And knowing that he's the only one who can give us what we need to be able to carry out this mission that we have been given. To be living stones, holy priests. And we don't say yes to this to try and earn anything. We don't say yes to this to show how good we are, how much we deserve Jesus. We just say yes to letting Jesus carry out the work in our lives that it's always, that has always been intended to be carried out, to transform us into people who look more like Jesus, more like Jesus and less stuck in our ways. We are reminded when we say yes to Jesus that we are living stones building our life on Jesus who is the cornerstone. 
And if you're not super familiar with ancient building practices or if you've heard this word cornerstone kicked around and you maybe heard it but you didn't know exactly what it meant, here's the deal. What Peter is referring to, and actually he's quoting Isaiah when he says this, but he's referring to the, the cornerstone of a foundation that is set in place and then every other stone that's laid after that is based off of that cornerstone. So it's really important that that cornerstone be exactly what we need it to be, that it be exactly in the right place for the sake of the structure of the building. So this is a way that we understand Jesus then, that Jesus is the cornerstone and the living cornerstone, and we are living stones then that build this temple. I love this idea of being part of this, I use the word fabric, even though I know we're talking about a building, but being part of this big thing that God is up to in the world and understanding that if our living stone isn't there in that wall, then there's a piece of the wall that's missing. It's not just about us as individuals, it's about us collectively as a family. And for some reason that I can't quite quite wrap my head around, not, not only does God call us to be living stones in this spiritual temple, but we are called also to be holy priests. Isn't that incredible when you think about it? Maybe possibly a little overwhelming when you think about it, but it helps us to understand kind of how, how we see Jesus and how we understand our relationship to Jesus and some of these main themes of the New Testament. And so I just want to kind of explain this to us a little bit so we all kind of know what, what's going on here. But before Jesus in the temple, the temple was a place where God's people would go to receive grace and forgiveness. They would bring their sacrifice to the temple and then there would be a high priest who would offer the sacrifice and then the high priest essentially was mediating forgiveness between people and God. And when Jesus went to the cross, then he became not only the temple, he became not only the place where grace is found, but he also became the sacrifice that mediates that peace between us and God. That's who Jesus is. And we understand that because of Jesus' humanness, we identify with him in a very particular way. We are told, Paul writes a lot about this, that we are joined with Jesus uh, in his, because we are joined with Jesus in his death, we will be joined with Jesus in his resurrection. And in the meantime, we are joined with Jesus as co-laborers, being a place of grace and a mediator of grace for the world around us. That's who God invites us to be. That's what this work of discipleship is, this, this work of, of diving in, of leaning into the, to the yes, to the best of our ability. This is what gets Pastor Richard and I so fired up. It's not the classes that we offer. It's not just about job security for us. It's about the reality that when you dive in and continue to strengthen your yes, you become more and more of who Jesus has called us to be as individuals, yes, but also as the collective capital C church, the bride of Christ, living stones, and each stone matters, built on the cornerstone of who Jesus is. We work with Christ in this, and there is nothing that disqualifies any single one of us from being able to do this. And in fact, if you go back to Genesis, if you go all the way back to the beginning, beginning, this work of co-laboring, this is always what we were created to do. This is what our first parents were designed to do, to work with God to take care of the land. And Richard's going to share a little bit more about that. I want to go back to that phrase, yes to Jesus. And just like that little baby where, where, where mom's milk is primal, it, 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 it is 
absolutely necessary for life. God designed us that saying yes to him is also absolutely necessary for life. Now, I want to just deconstruct some things very quickly. Is often when we think about this in a religious context, to say yes to Jesus is what someone did at summer camp. You know, I can remember Hume Lake Bible Camp, third grade, said yes to Jesus. You know, while Alice Griswold was playing the organ and Bill Corwin was playing the piano, I do the strains of Just As I Am, and the preacher was haranguing, and my adolescent hormones made me feel guilty, so apparently I go forward to say yes. You know, <laughs> okay, that's done. That's not it all what we're talking about. We're talking about, first of all, not something you gotta do, but the ability to just simply receive this gift of new life, this chosenness, this calledness, this rescuedness, uh, this inheritance we've been given. And this goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. That's how primal saying yes, yes to Jesus is. Our first parents were created in God's yes. Think about that. They would not have existed if God had not said yes. And when he looked at them, he smiled. He got a twinkle in his eye. And he went, oh boy, very good. So we have been created on purpose, in love, and very good, and all for a purpose. Well, what is that purpose? Well, what we learn is our first parents were created literally to be royal priests. To represent God to the world. That's what it means to be created in God's image. And two ways that shows up in Genesis chapter 1, it's that we represent God's authority in the world. It says in Scripture to have dominion over, and that's what it means, is to rule in God's behalf. Well, what on earth does that mean? It could mean anything. I mean, some people think it means beat the earth into submission until it conforms to our image. Other people mean it's use the dang thing up because in the end times it's all going to be burned up by fire anyways. Guess what? That's not true. It's not in the Bible. Okay, little tidbit. We'll have more of that on some other sermon. But if you want to know what the Bible says, you've got to go to the next chapter. What does it mean to have dominion over the world? Two words that God gives our first parents. Number one, he commands them to serve the land. Hear that? That our job is to be foot washers even to the environment. God was an environmentalist. Uh-oh. It literally says that, to serve the land. By the way, that word serve also means to worship. So when we serve the land, when we steward it, help it grow and help it flourish, that's an act of worship. The second thing is we are to be known as helpers to each other. That word is given to our first parents and, and it's only used there and then the rest of the time it's used for God alone. Because God is the universe's helper, the chief servant, the chief foot washer, as Jesus so aptly demonstrated. So when we say yes to God's yes, we start living this way as helpers and servers, the way God created us to live in the first place. And that means in his image, as his royal priest, mediating God's presence to the people, mediating God's love and God's truth, God's helping, God's serving now, earlier we talked about the identity of these people that Peter was writing to as people who live in exile, but also as people who are people of purpose, that God put them there to be his royal priests to the Babylonians. But there's even more. And we also live as people of reckless grace because half the time we don't get it right. We biff it royally. I have ADHD, which means my idea of focus lasts about a second. And then I drift. Pastor Amanda can talk about all the wonderful ways I drift. You know, off this way, off that way, you know. It's like, squirrel! <laughs> I also have spiritual ADHD. 
and my focus drifts off of God and onto myself. And yet, I live as a person who is under God's reckless grace. And guess what? That's true for you too. Because we all live messy lives. We all have very messy journeys. Most of us have stuff in the past we regret. Or we have pain of what someone has done to us. Or someone has lied to us and said we're no good. Or we're an accident. Or we'll never amount to anything. But guess what? God knows what to do with that mess because his mercy is reckless and his love is just as reckless. Because remember, Jesus, God himself, literally went to hell and back for us. And I'm not even cussing. And why? Because in God's own heart, God's character is one who is a forgiving God. And forgiveness means restoration, putting all things back together. Think of Peter himself. The guy denied Jesus three times. And the third time it says in most Bibles very politely, and he, he, he said so with an oath, which means he started cussing. And I don't know the bombs he dropped in Hebrew, and I just don't want to know. We'll just leave that at that. But he really made a mess of things. And in, if he was part of a corporation and did that to his boss, I think he'd be fired on the spot. But guess what? Jesus restores him. In fact, it takes three times before Peter actually believes him. Do you love me, Jesus said. Peter says, yes, I do. Probably didn't know what else to say. And Jesus said, you got your job back. Take care of my sheep. Peter doesn't get it. Do you love me? Second time. Yes, I do, sir. You know, nice and formal. Jesus says, well, then take care of my lambs. You got your job back. Peter still doesn't get it. So he says, Peter. And I can imagine him because the, uh, the Greek uh, and the Aramaic both can get informal. So he said informally, very intimately, are we friends? And at this point, Peter just gets just gripped. And he says, you know we are. Peter says, good. Now believe me, you got your job back. Take care of my sheep. Jesus is in the business of giving our job back over and over, no matter how, time, how many times we walk off the job. And that is because we live as people of hope. You see, our past doesn't define us. Our messes don't define us. What we just did a minute ago doesn't define us. God's already died for all of it. What we're going to do in the future doesn't define us. God's future defines us. And he even uses our own messes to move us forward as his royal priests. And that is his future for us. Bearer of his presence. Bearer of his good news. Even in our messes and often through our messes and often leveraged by our messes because God is in the business of leveraging everything. Pastor Amanda is going to talk about what that means as, as we, we go from today. So as we kind of prepare to... Uh, to wrap things up here today and to head into communion, get excited, okay? Uh, we have just, just a, something else I want to leave you with. Uh, I don't know how many of you in this room are dog people. I have a couple of dogs at home. And the blonde one here, her name is Grit. And she, you can tell in the picture, kind of, she has a leash on. That picture must be at least 10 years old because at this point when you get the leash out and you take it to her, she runs and lays down on her bed. She is the laziest dog ever put on the face of the earth. And then the other one, the black and white dog, his name is Bear. And he is three-quarters Australian Shepherd and one-quarter Border Collie. And he is made out of energy. It just exudes out of him. That's who he is. And so because I have these dogs at home, then sometimes I get sucked into dog reality TV. Anybody else do that? Uh, specifically in this case, um, Better Human, Better Dog with Caesar Malong, the dog, whis dog whisperer. Anybody? Anybody? Okay. Well, anyway, uh, good, good. Well, I'm going to introduce you to something then. Uh, anyway, 
uh, one of the things that happens here on this show quite a bit and is going to happen in this clip that I'm going to show you today is these dogs just kind of forget who they are and they forget who they're created to be and they forget what it's like to be in a family and to work together and to encourage one another and to lift one another up. And when they forget who they're supposed to be, then they just kind of end up in, like, complete chaos. And so there's three dogs in this family that I'm going to show you. The first one is Bella, and she is the, the stirrer of most of the chaos. Like, she causes a lot of problems. And then there's the other dog, Bubba, who just kind of gets sucked into Bella's vortex of chaos, and they end up fighting with one another quite a bit. And then there's a third dog named Angus, and Angus is just like this giant 160-pound dog who's just kind of like, dum 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 and kind of goes along but occasionally also get sucked into this and these three dogs aren't living together like they're created to be they're not living together uh, like a pack like a family and so they end up visiting Caesar and Caesar is going to help remind them of who they are take a look okay let's get Bubba first he's smart and he'll show them how it's done this dog's never exercised and they're known to attack each other so I'm going to start slow and introduce the motion to one dog at a time to prevent an attack. We have to really understand how to harness the power, how to manage the power. This guy is just going to watch. Oh, yeah. okay. Angus should be watching his brother and sister. He's 160 by himself. And his brain, he still has no idea how powerful he is. So we want to keep it that way. <laughs> oh, come on. There you go. There you go, okay. Good boy, good boy. Good boy, come on. Yeah. There you go. There you go. There you go. Look, look at homeboy. Look at homeboy. Yeah, you can let it go. Let it go. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the encouragement right there. You see it? No redirections, no lounges, no problems. Good boy, Baba. Good boy. Okay, now bring in Bella. Let's lower that excitement. Bella. Bella must prove here now that she's capable of committing to this exercise without redirecting again. Come on, Bella. Oh, look at her go. Look at her. Come on, Bella. Come on. Good job. Bella is doing fine on her own, but that's not good enough. What this family needs is for their dogs to be able to burn up energy by exercising like this together. Good girl. Come on. Come on. Yeah. She's getting it. Let's bring them together. We need to keep a close eye on Bella to make sure that excitement doesn't go too high and she doesn't go after her pack. There you go. Come on. Bella. This is all good. Yeah, it is. Oh my gosh, this was huge for us. I mean, I can't believe they're doing so well. They aren't fighting. They're all three together. That hasn't happened and it's been Years. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Look at that. Ha -ha! Oh, that's synchronicity. Yes, sir. Yeah. They did it. <laughs> There's a lot going on with this family. Nobody knows who they are. And when they don't know who they are, they cause all sorts of trouble and they spread trouble and they invite trouble, right? Did you hear um, where Caesar was talking about the big one, Angus, and he said, this dog doesn't know how powerful he is, and let's just keep it that way. 
And I, while that's really wise for a dog, like I just think about the church, right? And I think that sometimes, sometimes in some ways, the church simply doesn't know how powerful it could be if we were to get going on the right page. And of course, there's some times where I feel like maybe the church throws its weight around in ways that maybe aren't as helpful. But what if we remembered that we, all, every single one of us, are the church? That we are the bride of Christ. And what if in remembering who we are, this church that Jesus promised he would build, what if we remembered in that, that we're just called to be living stones. We're just called to be who we have been created to be. What if the church, like, like the dogs on the cliff, what if we just got really good at the fundamentals? What if we took a look at that list that Peter gives us in chapter 2, verse 1, and what if we took that to heart? And what if we decided to tell the truth? What if we got really serious, every single one of us, about being truthful? What if we decided to have our actions and our thoughts match and be consistent? Whether we are in public or whether we're around one or two people, no matter where we are, that our actions and our thoughts are consistent with one another. What if we got really good at just celebrating each other's successes, that we could be happy for one another when a brother or sister succeeds and we'd be able to celebrate with them. What if we got really good at that kind of a fundamental thing? What if we just used kind words, told the truth in kindness? What if we got really good at those fundamental things? Because I think sometimes the church gets a little bit ahead of ourselves and we pick up on certain issues that, that are important, absolutely. So, but we get all carried away in those issues, forgetting that if we, could, if we could get the fundamentals right, 99 out of 100 of those other issues would take care of themselves if we started at the fundamentals. What if the church, in addition to all of those things, again, going back to the fundamentals, what if we got good at being leaders when it comes to grace and forgiveness? What if we got good at leaning into that place of being holy priests where grace is found and where grace is offered and forgiveness is given? What if we got really good at that? <clears throat> and what if we knew and just leaned into it like we knew in the core of our bones that we weren't being asked to do this on our own, that we were not just encouraged to ask for help, but like remembering how fundamental it is to who we are. Because we think back to that night in which Jesus was betrayed. You can get your packet out, but don't open it yet. Don't open it yet. Just get ready. Get excited. Let the excitement build. We remember that night when Jesus was betrayed. And he took the loaf of bread, and as he had the loaf of bread, he was looking out at his friends. And when he looked at his friends, I said, don't open it yet. I can hear it. <laughs> anyway, speaking of forgiveness, it's fine. <laughs> Jesus looked out at this room at his friends, and he knew that not all of his friends there in that room that night were going to be there when he rose from the dead. He knew a couple of them were going to break his heart. He knew most, if not all, were going to run away and hide. He knew that all of those people in the room, there was only one who was going to be there when he hung on the cross. He knew this, and he still took the bread that was his body 
And in front of the disciples, he gave thanks to God for it, and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body for every single one of you. For the thing that you need more than anything that you can't do on your own for no other reason than because I love you. And you will be my church. You will be my bride. You will be the people who carry this on for generations and centuries to come. Not because of who you are, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done. So after supper, Jesus took the bread. He lifted it. He gave thanks for it. And he said to the disciples in the room that night that this was his body broken for all people for the forgiveness of sins and he said when you break this bread and you will when you do this with all the church remember me not just where we are in space and time gathered here uh, in this building in West Des Moines Iowa but we share in this meal with the folks across the street uh, with the Baptist down the road with all of the church in all of the country and all of the world we join together in this meal that Jesus gave us and we do this in the remembrance of who Jesus is and we declare who we are and in the same way after supper Jesus took the cup and he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood which means this is the new promise made for you but that by the shedding of Jesus blood our sins are forgiven so Jesus said when you share in this cup Remember me. Remember who you are. And as we gather today to prepare our hearts for this, we join in the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. That has been prayed by the whole church throughout centuries in our location, in locations all over the world, in homes across the country and the world. We pray this prayer together, not just as something that we do, but to remind us who Jesus says we are. So let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now for those of you that follow directions, tear into this thing like your life depends on it. It is the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sins. And as we close today, we remember that the God who sees us and knows us and calls us his own is the God who loved us so much that when we were still dead in sin, he gave us his son, Jesus Christ, so that we would never be separated from him, not ever. God tells us that we are chosen, we are not forsaken. If the son sets us free, and he does, then we are truly Free. So as we celebrate today as one church with one voice, I invite the band to come forward and we're going to worship because we have a lot to celebrate this morning.